Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Jacqueline Horichka, um, who is the author of the new book from Temple University Press, Suspect Citizens, Women, Virtue, and Vice in Backlash Politics. This is a fascinating exploration of feminist political theory, history of the United States, and questions about morality, particularly with regard to women and the feminine and female. But I will let Jacqueline talk to us about that. So I'd like to introduce Jacqueline and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Thank you so much for having me today, here today, Lily. This is my pleasure. Honor. Um, I'm thrilled to talk about Suspect Citizens. And uh, currently, I am an associate vice provost for scholarly creative and community engagement at Fairfield University, where I am a professor of politics as well. And the project Suspect Citizens actually grew out of my dissertation project. (laughs) It seems like so very long ago. And it's amazing the ways in which when we start doing a project such as our dissertation, the way it morphs and becomes something very different when it becomes a public uh, or a a published book project. So it went from 601 pages as my dissertation. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Down to a palatable um, books book length project. And one of the ways, really the way that I came to the project was as a graduate student right at the beginning of President George Walker Bush's uh, GW's presidency and the election of 2000. And I think what I was really continued to be so perplexed by was the consistent cycles and reiterations of what I saw as the same discourses happening over and over again related to women's citizenship. So we saw in 1992, the year of the woman, we had Bill Clinton's presidency following uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency and the rise of the Christian right in the late, in the early and uh, late 1980s. Then it felt like there was this breather in the 1990s with the year of the woman and Bill Clinton's presidency uh, or the early part of his presidency with all of its challenges, but that there were advances being made uh, by women. And as a young woman at that time, I was very excited by those things. And I thought, wow, we're making progress and we're moving forward. And uh, this idea of post-feminism that describes that period now was not really as prominent at that time. And I wasn't registering it that way. And then I got to 2000 and the election of President Bush and then subsequently 9-11. And, but the questions around that time, around the turn of the 21st century for me, 
and Bush's presidency were that I was seeing the same kinds of questions, the same kinds of challenges to women's citizenship and belonging within the American political community that I had experienced when I was in high school. So even just in my short lifetime, I was perplexed and puzzled. Why is it (laughs) that women continue to struggle against the same kinds of barriers? And as a political scientist, there are lots of tools at my disposal But um, my dissertation advisor was Joan Tronto, and her work in care ethics informed me and moved my direction as I was in graduate school to thinking about morality and the relationship of morality to politics. And this is what took me to the concepts of virtue and vice, which anchor the book Suspect Citizens. And and that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about next, that the, the concepts, as you say, of virtue and vice that uh, sort of provide the lens and also the exploration, um, the content of the exploration for your book um, is really fundamental to, as you talk about it, this question of morality. Um, and the role of women as citizens, um, whatever that role may be. And, and your book goes through this sort of very careful historical um, and theoretical sort of depiction and understanding of how women are seen as citizens um, or can be citizens, both of those things, in fact. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that, that thesis with regard to how morality and these questions of vice and virtue um, frame, as you say, women's paradoxical relationship to political power. Right. So as I mentioned, the kind of starting point for my inquiry in this book came out of my own personal experience um, as a woman growing up in the United States but growing up through a time in the rise of the Christian right and the way in which the Christian right, and then even subsequently the family values debates, which do enter into the text and and provide it with a framework because of their deep relationship to women and also to feminism and feminist political theory in the United States. So I became very interested in the way that morality was being operationalized by the Christian right and how it was that in a sense, there seemed to be a way that they had captured some kind of moral high ground or been able to determine the ground upon which morality was relating to politics, specifically through religious discourse. And I came to virtue and vice through that particular context And thinking about the ways in which these concepts, while framed politically, were oftentimes identified more with their moral construct and less with their civic construct. And I wanted to see what were the actual power dynamics that were at play when we saw virtue and vice as they were attributed similarly and differently to males and to females in the United States as particularly for women as they struggled at different junctures 
to achieve citizenship or to even uh, achieve visibility within the political community, or even as they stepped out of their private homes into the churches during the Puritan period, for example. And what became increasingly evident to me is that virtue and vice, by looking at closely different texts from Cotton Mather all the way through to William Galston and the communitarians, um, by looking at texts closely, the operations of virtue and vice and their the way they operated as a dualism, as oppositional categories that never overlap. And how they operated in this way, however, was only a part of the picture. Usually women's attribution of virtue is what granted them some access into public or political life. And I was curious about how it was that that attribution of virtue functioned to translate from them individually to them and a responsibility for the entire common good, the entire political sphere. Because what I had seen in the family values debates or the rise of the Christian right, or even the arguments of Phyllis Schlafly um, in her opposition to second wave feminism was that somehow women, and I'm using that term very broadly here, that women had been attributed even as the, one of the more vulnerable categories in our political system were attributed with extraordinary capacity to destroy it. If, for example, rates of teenage pregnancy increased. Uh, so we had you know, a blaming of teenage girls who got pregnant for the demise of the entire of the republic. <laughs> of the republic, right? And through virtue, it is that attribution, right? Virtue gives this infinite capacity for goodness or relationship to the common good but it's also the infinite capacity, the default position, which is vice. And it is that operation between the two. So what I found in thinking about virtue and vice as a dualism is that indeed it's not quite functioning that way. It has two different elements to it. It has the finite, this capacity to transcend the individual and hold women accountable for either the greatness of the nation state or its radical demise. And that indeed this radical demise, this default position defined by infinite vice became the holding pattern for women and is what to me became a key mechanism in allowing arguments where teenage girls or single mothers or divorcees, for example, somehow became attributed with this capacity to destroy the entire American Republic. <laughs> and it is in that very dynamic that I think one of the more significant political understandings arises from suspect citizens.
And this is what I found really interesting in terms of your analysis. And, you know, I, I sort of have thought about and read discussion of, you know, sort of the role of the, the female citizen, right? Um, and particularly when we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the right to vote, um, there's a lot of sort of revisiting of the, the purity of the suffragists um, and how they were supposed to keep the sort of less than stellar attributes of some citizens from diluting the Republic. Um, But your argument, and I think this is really fascinating is that that females citizens, even before they were citizens or full citizens had this moral responsibility we're upholding the Republic, regardless of whether they could or not. Is that correct? Right. And so that that is that, you know, coming out of Nancy Cott's work and other work around the Republican mother and the Republican wife and all of, you know, these really powerful conceptions of how women's virtue in the United States did give them leverage points. And the suffrage and the 19th Amendment are a great example where women were able to leverage their moral guardianship. And this moral guardianship derives from female infinite moral virtue that translates into a more infinite civic virtue that is really captivated by this conception of purity. And this is a bit troublesome. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. Yeah, right? It elevates women to this pedestal and it gives them access to public political life as guardians of virtue and the common good that are well beyond the capacity of any individual person or even a collective of persons or really anyone. This should be the responsibility of all and all members of our political community. And yet we attribute it to a marginally accepted, and here I'm thinking about the early 20th century, a marginally accepted group into our political community. So let's hold those women who just got the right to vote responsible for the virtue and the common good of the entire nation. And this seemed a bit out of whack, (laughs) to put it bluntly, with the amount of power that they had. And it certainly deflects moral responsibility from those who did hold political power. And so what I found so interesting, this moral guardianship trope coming out of virtue, usually didn't, in my estimation, pay enough attention to vice. And the fact that it is this component of this moral dynamic and thinking about it more as a moral dynamic that helps us to understand what I call the double burden of moral responsibility, that it is not only responsibility for your own morality, for women, that of your family, or even your immediate community, but then expands out to an entire nation. But that double burden of moral responsibility is also what can scapegoat you, can lay blame on the individual or a small group of individuals 
for the entire demise of a nation state. And it's that capacity for women to always be in the default category of vice that characterizes them as suspect citizens. Go ahead. They get moved back and forth across these categories of virtue and vice. And it's in that constant movement, we can blame women for this. We can categorize them in this way. We can place the double burden of moral responsibility on them in that way. It is that very movement that creates suspicion, that undermines trust, and I think delimits women's legitimacy and therefore citizenship in the U.S. context. And this was, I mean, I think that the title is is apt and the idea of suspect citizenship, I think, is really apt because you're also talking about the precarity of women as, as you know, as members of the political community. Um, and so it's, I mean, you do talk about the sort of dimensions of virtue and vice classically, um, this sort of Madonna whore sort of dichotomy. But what you're saying also is that if you sort of have these broad understandings of virtue and vice, that there that women may not be in that sort of classical dichotomy, but they're in a political dichotomy um, with regard to their citizenship, uh, and oftentimes over which they have very little control. It's not you who's a teenage a teenager who's pregnant, but your neighbor. Um, and you are not necessarily responsible per se for your neighbor um, in that capacity also. Uh, and I and I just wanted to ask you a little bit more in this context, because the contemporary dimensions of your book, I think, are really um, sort of rightly written. Um, the rest of the book is also very well written, but the really the contemporary sort of discussions and and I think. I saw a lot in a certain sense of an interrogation of the rise of the conservative movement and sort of conservative thinking, um, in part because it's the most recent backlash. Uh, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how, you know, again, you've sort of touched on it in your own sort of growing up in this sort of context of these ebbs and flows. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about how you saw both the rise of the Christian right and the moral majority um, and the family values as part of this kind of contemporary um, precarity for female citizens? Sure, I'm happy to. The the contemporary moment, of course, really drives the the text, and that was the jumping off point for my interest in this very question. And I was really struck by the ways in which, however, the contemporary moment is so deeply embedded in a political script that still in so many ways emanates from the Puritans. And that's what was so striking in the way that I set ended up setting up the book chapters was to put authors like Cotton Mather from the Puritan 
period <laughs> in relative conversation with Mary Daly and thinking about her attempt to retrieve and revision virtue and vice outside of a traditional Christian religious context and to define them from a feminist perspective. And the Lowell Mill girls uh, who were textile workers in Lowell, Massachusetts in about the mid-19th century, who were some of the early women to be on the factory floor and then to also work towards organizing into labor unions, into conversation with lesbian feminists debating sadomasochism <laughs> and you know, then moving into the contemporary period. And I think a more obvious one in that context was looking at, at that time, the communitarian debates with ethic of care theorists around what did care mean? What did family values mean? What did it mean as feminist theorists were taking the conception of care traditionally located within the family and imagining it from a feminist perspective and you know, moving from Sarah Ruddick's thinking and maternal thinking to Joan Tronto in Moral Boundaries? And what did care mean in a political context. And within all of those different dynamics and those different chapters, really imagining how was it, what were the dynamics occurring that tracked these cycles of morality and virtue and vice as women were struggling at these different moments. And to me, one of the most provocative and insightful chapters in the text is the chapter dealing with the Lowell Mill girls and the debates among lesbian feminists in the late 1970s into the 1980s and even the 1990s around sadomasochism. And I'll tell you why I wrote that chapter and brought those two together. Originally, that was not what happened in my dissertation and when I was doing this. And dissertations I, are never necessarily as lively as the books. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and that's why the books are, yeah, I, I are so much fun to write because you've done all the, you know, the research and the thinking. Um, it was really because what I wanted to, to look at was what happens in debates among women when they are already marginalized in the political community. So the Lowell Mill Girl debates happened among working women in Lowell, Massachusetts, who were very marginalized within their community as women who worked for pay outside the home. So that whole category was marginalized within the political script of that time, right? They were breaking with the predominant Victorian conceptions of morality and traditional womanhood. And then you have the lesbian feminists who were also very marginalized within American political society at that particular time. And not only were they marginalized in that society, they were marginalized within the feminist movement and what became the interesting comparative moment 
is that the Lowell Mill girls who fought against unionization and the lesbian feminists who opposed sadomasochism, they used the part of the political script where they could claim virtue and a moral high ground in relationship to the Lowell Mill girls who wanted a union and were fighting for it and the lesbian feminists who were supportive of SNM within a whole range of, of very important qualifications. I found in that moment, that's the power of this political script. If it is then used among women who are already marginalized and generally seen as vice-ridden in our society, that they reenact this political script, this to me speaks to how it's inscribed into the way that we operate and understand discursive political moments among women and between women. And what struck me in that chapter, the thing that that really kept me going and gave me hope was the way in which the low mill girls fighting for unionization and the pro SM lesbian feminists embraced vice in many ways. They understood how marginalized they were within the broader community and within their immediate female-centric or even feminist-centric spaces. And from that vantage point, they could see possibilities. They could see opportunities for change. And for the pro-SM lesbian feminists in particular, the idea of fantasy the capacity in some ways to really enact a a Sheldon Wolin idea of political theory, to have vision, to see beyond the dynamics, in this case, of morality that we're operating and limiting and enabling and empowering them to question those very dynamics by embracing what was supposedly deviant. And that that deviant place, they saw how women were being moved back and forth across these spaces and places, how women in the context of the lesbian feminist debates were moving themselves across that with the anti-SNM lesbian feminists embracing a virtuous position, one that aligned with predominant conservative forces in society. And the pro-lesbian feminists seeing that and recognizing it and therefore having the capacity to challenge that entire framework. So those who are often pushed to the margins and who see their vice-ridden position the clearest also have the capacity to see beyond it and to see the dynamics that need to change for fundamental progress to happen. Part of what you're also talking about in the in the book is that um, there's there's sort of the the limit on on what is could could potentially be lost shall we say in terms of political viability um for the Lowell Mill girls or for the lesbian feminists um that they understood their marginal position and and to some degree therefore a position of weak, weakness that they were able also to turn into a position of strength in terms of of politics, of political movement. Is that correct? Yes. 
And that is where the kind of the hopeful bits come in. <laughs> in the book is that, first of all, the capacity to see how these dynamics of morality are operating and functioning. Oftentimes, one of the challenges in starting this project was, how was I going to operationalize virtue and vice? I tried a genealogical approach, but Foucault just wasn't working there. And then uh, I tried a, a number of, I tried Wittgensteinian, like I tried all these approaches, right? When I was trying to figure out the methodology for my dissertation and none of them fit. And ultimately a conceptual histories um, methodology worked to be able to do this, to be able to capture the ways in which concepts shift and change within different historical moments. And sometimes they are indicators that these concepts are no longer functioning in order to advance the progress of people within those contexts. And so to me, virtue and vice operate in this dualism, in this deeply embedded political script in ways that continuously perpetuate backlash politics. And the the opportunities for change emanate from seeing beyond them and moving into different spaces and conceptions of how we understand morality and ethics and its relationship to politics. And so at the end of the book, I look at this idea of collective responsibility as a shift from the double burden of moral responsibility and the preconceived, deeply embedded, well beyond the American context, ideas of virtue and vice, and the ways in which we inherit them, and they carry with them normative standards, or in the case of virtue, a standard of excellence that's already predetermined and preset within our society and within various societies from deep, deep traditions. Thinking beyond that, using the idea of collective responsibility, was trying to imagine what happens if we take morality and ethical questions and place them within a more deliberative democratic context. Not that we we kind of end up in a moral relativism. That's not the point. The point is engaging in deliberative democratic discussions in order to identify what are the moral, I guess, standards or values that we in a particular context want to establish and that we as a group can revisit through different collective opportunities and that we then all collectively take responsibility for that and for those decision-making processes. And that was that was my hopeful, my attempt to, okay, if virtue and vice aren't working, if dualisms aren't functioning, then how can we think about it differently and yet retain the capacity to have moral values that are important? I think we we want to be able to say that certain things are not good in a society. And so, but how we go about doing that, I think is is very important. And and I think also, as you point out in the conclusion, that that this is also how we potentially move away from this kind of double standard, um, 
that women are are sun- fundamentally responsible for the the moral perpetuation of the republic um but men perhaps less so <laughs> um <laughs> yes and and the idea is that and i one of the the outcomes of the argument i think is that ultimately the idea about responsibility the political responsibility for american democracy becomes deflected by the way in which men are constructed and this is where the work of alexis de tocqueville in the argument comes out where alexis de tocqueville is talking about the separate spheres argument and the way in which women are supposed to exercise their virtue in the private sphere and men are really released from exercising that level of virtue. And they are in a representative democracy also released from direct political engagement, that men should be focused on the economic sphere, women focused on the social sphere, and then politicians are left to be responsible for the political sphere. And yet even Tocqueville talks about how the you know even in the supposed golden age of american democracy that the people really saw politicians as deeply immoral and that the the politics of american democracy was left to the politicians that everybody was already saw as suspect and that we see this kind of hole where Having collective responsibility means that all citizens take moral responsibility for the political sphere and for its future. When indeed, I think that there's uh, a sense at the end of the book and a deep concern with the fact that citizens and their politicians all saw each other as suspect. And of course, you can see this leading to my thinking about our contemporary moment. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, and so I, I did want to ask you a little bit about sort of how you talk about the conceptual history of virtue and vice and the inevitable sort of backlash. Um, because one of the things you trace in interesting ways is that as you say, there's sort of these efforts towards progress and then the inevitable backlash um, and the the potential implementation of, you know, sort of full citizenship for um, women and having them move out of this kind of duality that they're always in in a precarious way. Would that eliminate? the possibility of a gender backlash? I think, of course, this this is the hope. This would be the vision. And that was the starting point for the book. If I could identify one of the key mechanisms of backlash politics that I thought had been less visible and less central to feminist political theory, but was quite central to how forces working against feminism in the United States were operating by containing, um, controlling in some ways, the discourse around morality. My hope was that 
I could contribute to eliminating these cycles of backlash. And yet we find ourselves in such an interesting contemporary moment where the, I guess, rise of Donald Trump and the 2016 election and the uh, pussy grabs back (laughs) meme and the Women's March Global, of which I just participated in my third one, um, where we saw this this rise of this uh, person, Donald Trump, to be president of the United States. And we have seen a backlash by feminists, I think, powerfully against him. <laughs> and But I think maybe we want to consider it as a front lash, that it is now, I, I think, I hope, despite everything, um, that it's propelling women and mobilization, not only in the United States, but in global contexts, because we're confronting such a powerful wall of not only misogyny and patriarchy, but white nationalism, and that it's providing a a way that we can perhaps push through and even achieve greater citizenship as we perhaps can move out of this. And I realize that I'm I'm maybe a bit too optimistic here, but we do, of course, realize that we have more women in Congress right now than we have had, and that those women are being vocal, are in leadership positions, and I realize they're only in the House right now, um, and we have an extraordinary uh, group that coming together for the 2020 election, I see hope here. I see hope in the way in which these women and women across our country in unity with women in global locations are envisioning and perhaps pushing past those blockades and moving past, maybe even embracing suspect citizenship. And embracing that precarity and that uncertainty to push the boundaries and to move in a forward direction, as opposed to being absorbed by a push back to a barrier created by a president and those who support him. I mean, I I think, you know, an interesting way that you can sort of look at not only a number of the women who were elected or who chose to run, ran, some of whom were elected, some of whom were not elected um, or didn't win their races, that there was a sort of a different approach to even thinking about, hi, I'm a citizen and I'm running for office and I happen to be female. Um and that, you know, there there wasn't the same kind of I'm going to follow the trope that men follow when they run for office. And, you know, people have sort of recently asked me these questions about the fashion of the new House members um, and that they don't they're not wearing black and brown suits or black and blue suits, um, that there's an embrace of color, um, not just skin color, but colors that they're wearing so that there is a, again, as you say, there might be a sort of a front lash. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, so we'll take Susan Faludi's concept, right? And just shift, flip the script on that. Um, I think that that's right. And I think that we're, you know, and, and right now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really, you know, the kind of cause celeb, but, but she's exciting and she's vibrant and she is really energizing young women and, and people from across this country, from all kinds of gender identities, sexual orientations, uh, racial backgrounds. I mean, I think one of the, the really exciting and important things too, as we know, coming out of 2016, is the, the extraordinary power of women of color within the electorate and their capacity to have, to be recognized as a significant constituency with the capacity to shift districts and to have such power and that that's now being translated into their representation at various levels of governance, not to mention that in the House and and also uh, in the Senate as well. And I, I have to say, looking back on my book, Suspect Citizens, and I struggled with this when I was writing the book, and I think with the experience I have now, I would probably have used a much more intentional and explicit intersectional lens. And here I'm, I'm thinking about intersectionality coming out of the extraordinary work of U.S. Black feminist theorists in the United States. Uh, Angie Marie Hancock's work has been of great importance to me or Edwina Bartofosa's work among many, many others, uh, Nira Uval Davis in thinking about intersectionality on a global scale, but really in the text, thinking about intersectionality as a methodology and an epistemology. I think that it would have em- enabled me in a much more concise capacity to track not only the gendered, sexed, uh, sexualized components of the argument, but to draw out much more explicitly the classed and particularly the raced dynamics of what was happening with women and citizenship and morality at different junctures throughout the American political script. And if I could go back and write the book, or I think, you know, Sometimes we think of writing this, the second book on this topic or maybe an article. I would go back and have wanted to go back and really think about this text from the position of differently raced female bodies and sexed bodies and classed bodies throughout American political history. And while I'm not writing that book right now, <laughs> Um, What book are you writing right now? I am writing, I was invited to write a book, which doesn't happen. So (laughs) I I jumped on it. I am writing a book called Globalization and Sex that belongs to the Globalization series published by Roman and Littlefield. It is a series edited by Manfred Steger and Terrell Carver, which has getting close to almost 20 books that have been published in this series. And um, the book is in its early stages at this juncture, but I want it, it really does pick up on some of the, the end point of suspect citizens for me, where 
I, and I found myself questioning citizenship itself, that virtue and vice as a dualism map onto citizenship as defined by inclusion and exclusion, subject and other, those with vice and those without it. And this is the conversation we're having right now in, in politics in the United States around immigration, um, that the immigrant has to be virtuous. And the one who is excluded is one who is, a, of course, somebody who has committed crimes or, um, you know, is, is vice driven. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I see the operation of the conception of suspect citizens operating in that space, but also in this questioning of ourselves, those who are ostensibly citizens in this country, and the deep uncertainty and suspicion that we are experiencing in relationship to each other that is preventing us as a nation to say that it is wrong to build this wall and to use our resources in this way, even if you do support greater border security, or that we find it, we don't find the capacity for the political will as an entire nation to say, putting children into camps when they come across the border is wrong. And that somehow American democracy can hold those things, to me, speaks to a way in which we are not only suspicious of each other as citizens, but somehow we've become suspicious of what we actually understand American democracy to be or the potential which it holds. And that somehow we're protecting some conception of citizenship that is defined by building a wall and othering very vulnerable groups of people who are seeking out safety and refuge in our country that has the capacity to meet it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that your discussion of what do we mean actually by citizenship, um, your book takes on the sort of question of the role of women as citizens. Um, but there's a broader question as you're, I think you're correctly identifying. And I recently talked to Matthew Longo about his new book on the border. And it was again, this question of, you know, how do we conceptualize citizenship? Um, how do we conceptualize who gets to come in and who doesn't, um, which are all around this question? Um, so I take it that that is your new project. That is the new project, and it really is built on a a deep suspicion, if you will, of citizenship as a concept that has the capacity to meet the demands of the 21st century, to meet the demands of ever-flowing boundaries and borders, uh, whether they be virtual or physical or internal to the individual, to match conceptions of gender fluidities and um, ideas of, of race, uh, that these things are fluid and dynamic and flowing and ever-changing, and that the 
modern enlightenment conception of citizenship as bounded by specific geographic nation state borders doesn't seem to fit where we're at in the 21st century. And I'm deeply interested in feminist work around conceptions of home and belonging as pivot points toward how we can imagine an alternative to citizenship. While we're still pulled into the kinds of rights and protections that citizenship can afford people, but it also becomes such a tool and oftentimes it becomes weaponized as we're seeing at the southern borders of our country to deny fellow human beings what should just be fundamental rights, responsibilities to meet their needs as people who share this earth with us. And so when you finish that book, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it? I would be honored to, Lily. This has been such a great opportunity. I've enjoyed it so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jacqueline Borishka, um, for joining me today to talk about your new book, Suspect Citizens, Women, Virtue, and Vice in Backlash Politics, recently published by Temple University Press. Jacqueline, where can somebody pick up a copy of your book? If there is a brick and mortar store that you'd like to shout out, now's your opportunity. Ooh, I wish I did have a brick and mortar. I think you best go online to Temple University Press or the Amazon. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lily. 